0: Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This Week I Learned that flights now take longer than they did 50 years ago. Today, a flight from Los Angeles to New York takes about 5 hours and 20 minutes, if you're lucky, but back in the early days of commercial flights, in the late 1950s and early 60s, that same flight took only 4 hours and 30 minutes. A flight from New York to Houston takes about 4 hours today, but in 1973, you could traverse that same distance in just 2 and a half hours. Historically, commercial aircraft flew an average of 8% faster than their optimal cruising speed. It was actually cost-effective. Flying faster expends more fuel, but back then, getting the plane to the destination faster to pick up another load of passengers and get them to where they want to go, minimized crew costs while maximizing profit. It was a good trade-off for the extra fuel. And then the aughts happened. From 2000 to 2011, gas prices jumped from about $0.70 a gallon to more than $3. Airlines were forced to change all sorts of practices to make up for the costs. This is about when baggage fees started to skyrocket, and a lot of shorter routes were canceled. But it was the fuel savings that really made a difference. By the end of the 2000s, several airlines started slowing down. Southwest Airlines claimed to have saved $40 million in 2008 by extending each flight by one to three minutes. JetBlue saved $13.6 million a year by adding two minutes on each of its flights. Now, for some flights, these changes are incremental because the appeal of a shorter flight is still enticing enough for passengers to pay top dollar, which leads to the other reason why flight times are longer these days. It's an unofficial industry practice known as schedule padding. There's such pressure to have flights land on time that airlines make sure they have enough wiggle room on either side for all those delays that inevitably hold us up. Though, honestly, if you ask airlines, they will deny the practice. But we all know what's going on. Oh, and that whole making up time in the air thing? Pilots can make up a little bit of time in the air if your flight is delayed. If your flight is delayed between 30 and 50 minutes, pilots may be willing to accept the higher fuel costs by going faster if there's a chance they'll arrive on time. But once that window closes, so does your chance for a shorter flight. this week I learned that mushrooms can make it rain. Their meteorological influence has to do with how fungi breed. Fungi, like animals, plants and bacteria, have very specific ways of dispersing their genes. Like seeds on some trees, for example, are distributed by birds or squirrels that carry the nuts far from the original source. Dandelions have those feather-duster-like seedlings that are so light the wind or a child's breath can carry them. Fungi disperse their parents' genes by sending out millions of tiny, single-celled particles, called spores, into the atmosphere. Mushrooms, which are of course a type of fungi, are responsible for most of those millions of fungi spores that are floating around in the air. What's interesting about mushroom spores is how they're sent into the air. It's a tiny mechanical system that is powered by water and a small amount of sugar. Okay, so each spore, which is too tiny to see with the naked eye, is shaped like an apostrophe with a little curve at the bottom, and each apostrophe is attached to the mushroom by a little sliver. At the very end of the apostrophe, at the very tip of the curve, the spore secretes a small amount of water and a tiny amount of sugar. The sugar is water absorbent, so it creates a little ball of condensation. Meanwhile, the rest of the spore is also creating a little pool of condensation. So you basically have these two teeny tiny droplets of water growing on the spore, and eventually the two get big enough that they collide. And this is where things really get exciting. (music) This sudden fusion of droplets creates such a force that the spore's center of gravity lurches to one side, which causes that little sliver of attachment to ricochet in the opposite direction. Those opposing forces cause the spore to break off and launch, slingshot style, into the air at a rate of 3 feet per second. According to the Scientific American, this acceleration is equivalent to about 10 feet thousand times the force astronauts experience during shuttle launches. A single gilled mushroom can shoot out about 30,000 spores every second, which means billions a day from just one mushroom. And depending on air currents, the spores can reach heights of up to 50 miles and fly around for months. So scientists wondered if all those billions of tiny water-absorbing surfaces might be affecting the atmosphere. So they collected spores and watched them in a chamber of controlled humidity. As the scientists cranked up the humidity, they noticed that the sugars on the spore surface continued to attract and hold water from the environment. By the time humidity reached 100%, which in our atmosphere would create cloud formations or fog or rain, each entire spore was surrounded in a shell of liquid water. Now one sodden sugar spore isn't enough to make a raindrop, but if millions of tons of these waterlogged spores were jostling around in the air or trapped in clouds, which they are, they can collide to form bigger droplets and cause rainfall. It's interesting because fungi thrive in moist areas, so they're actually creating the best environment for themselves. But scientists actually don't think this rain-making ability of mushrooms was an evolutionary trait. Just a happy environmental accident. This week I learned why it seems words can lose their meanings the more you say them out loud. Loud, 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 loud. It's a phenomenon called semantic satiation, and it can happen when you read one word over and over and over again. The words seem to dismantle, becoming not really a word anymore, but a series of letters or sounds. The phenomenon was first discovered back in 1907 by a pair of female scientists. Though the term semantic satiation was coined in 1962, the idea is the same. What happens is a type of brain fatigue. Every time you read or say a word, your brain cells fire. But to do it a second time requires more energy to fire those same brain cells, and with each subsequent firing, more and more and more energy. So your brain gets to the point where it doesn't even really respond, or there's a delay in responding to the reading or the saying of a word. Basically, your brain is mush. Because you're not only saying or reading a word, you're also recalling its meaning. Your brain, unbeknownst to you, is doing all of this work with each word. Meanwhile, the word is becoming less stimulating to your brain, so your brain is both exhausted by the word and increasingly indifferent to it. Hence, nonsense. Loud, loud, loud. It can happen with any word, but the time it takes your brain to turn to mush varies. Words with greater associations, think explosion, will take longer because your brain gets stuck on the strong, dramatic emotions of that particular word. This week I learned about a villainously super spider web that gains strength as it kills. For most spider webs, it's not the silken threads themselves that catch bugs, it's the droplets of glue. But that's amateur hour compared to the spider web of the Cribblet spider. Their spider web catch mechanism is right out of the villain's plot of a Marvel comic book. When an insect touches the strands of the Cribblet silk, the waxy chemicals on the bug's outer surface get sucked into the woolly nanofibers of the web, reinforcing them. The criblet spider's web starts out as this fuzzy, thin, sort of wooly texture. But with each insect that lands on it, its thin threads thicken until the mess of nanofibers becomes as solid and sturdy as a rope. And as for that insect victim, well, it becomes a part of the web. When scientists put the silk of a criblet spider under a powerful microscope, they found that the individual nanofibers were indistinguishable from the insect caught in it. It was as if the two had been fused together. When they looked even closer, they found that the web's fibers were covered in some sort of chemical fluid, which matched the chemicals found on the insect shell. Now, scientists proved this theory by exposing the spider silk to insects whose waxy chemical outer layer had been removed, as well as to those insects that weren't treated, and the silk adhered eight times more strongly to the normal insect shells than the treated ones but insects have evolved a defense mechanism over time. That waxy chemical layer is a protective coating that they need to retain water, so they can't just get rid of it. But some insects have made this waxy layer so thick and sticky that it can't be easily sucked up by that web. The criblet spider is actually among the most ancient spiders, and scientists suspect that their superweb is the predecessor to the glue spider webs that we have normally. Because insects evolved to fend off the chemical-sucking webs, some criblet spiders began evolving new ways of snagging insects, hence the glue. But the insects' evolutionary tactics can't defend both types of spider traps, which is why our favorite villainous criblet spider trap is still around. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned, you can head on over to theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainers podcast. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you four risk-free issues of The Week magazine. To get those, visit theweek.com slash for free. I'm Lauren Hansen and thank you so much for listening.